0: Good morning, I'm Claudia Shamba, your host, and this is the February 8th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest is... Kathy Stromile-Golden, director of the international program and special assistant to the president of Mississippi Valley State University. She's the provost there. The historically black colleges and universities have been taking some heat. And so we're going to cover all of that because it sort of dropped off the radar. We want to put it back on the radar and see how how folks are faring there and in all the work that has to be done in that. So we'll be right back with Dr. Golden. Welcome back to the show. Today's program was born of the realization that several of the 12, at least 12 historically black colleges and universities received bomb threats. That puts it in the passive voice. Listeners, I choose to say that that they were threatened with the prospect of being bombed, and I I was offered a guest prospect to cover this and many other confounding circumstances on college campuses in, I'm still looking at my calendar, it says 2022. My guest for the full hour is Kathy Stromile-Golden to cover these circumstances. She is director of the international program and uh, she's a provost at the Mississippi Valley State University in Itabina, Mississippi, where she previously served as the associate vice president for academic affairs and director of the Delta Research and Culture Institute. She previously directed the Mississippi Consortium for International Development's higher education development project for Iraq. She was a Fulbright lecture researcher at the Academy for Public Administration under the President of Azerbaijan Republic, served in the International Development Partnerships activity at the United Negro College at um, Fund Special Programs Corporation and has held administrative positions at Morris Brown College, Atlanta, Georgia, Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland Southern University, Southern University, Shreveport, Louisiana, and Kathy has been on, Dr. Golden's been on the faculty of the political science at Clark Atlanta University, University of Colorado, Texas Tech University, and Arkansas State University. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in political science and social sciences from Southern University and her PhD in political science from the University of Kentucky. She was chancellor's post graduate fellow at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and scholar in communist societies where she's been awarded for projects in China, Russia, Poland, and Hungary. Her international collaborative work has taken her to Liberia, Mauritania, and Azerbaijan. We've mentioned Azerbaijan earlier, earlier work. Kathy Golden is the National Conference of Black Political Science Executive Director, Director of the Graduate Assistantship Program. Today, we'll explore the intersection of academics, advocacy, and activism heaped on her shoulders. Dr. Golden comes to us today from her office in Itabina, Mississippi. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Golden. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you on for the full hour. There is a great deal to cover. I'm sure you could probably put this on four different conference panels. So, we'll try to do justice to these different boxes we're going to open, but I want to find out first as we do this live. And I I'd like to respectfully Dr. Golden check in on your disposition and how you're holding up with the demands on you as a woman, a black woman a black academic in political science and in higher ed administration. And again, checking my calendar in 2022.
1: So I think I'm holding up well. I kind of live by that scriptures that says too much is given, much is required. And so I come from a tradition of hard work, multitasking, and so i think i've done pretty well i think the, the hardest thing for me was doing when we were right in the middle of covid and during that time i was one of maybe two or three people who were here on the campus throughout the ordeal and so that took a toll on my health fortunately i recognized what was going on with my body, and was able to turn that around. So I think I'm doing okay.
0: Okay. Well, we're we're going to talk about intersections of all these responsibilities, and so that's that's part of the public health part. And I'm not sure in the Mississippi state level leadership that you were you uh, had perhaps more headwinds to deal with the messaging for keeping all the students safe. We're gonna we're gonna bring all that together. So. We're going to talk now about last week were bomb threats on 17 historically black colleges and university campuses, five of them in Mississippi, one of which you are your campus, Mississippi Valley State University was mm. affected by that. So we know no bombs were detonated, but the terror intended to be inflicted upon these communities, it did take place and that sort of reverberates. So like other kinds of suffering, of of wounding, the outward signs of damage aren't so apparent, but the internal damage, the intended effect is what is the problem. So if Dr. Ghosn, you could talk about the initial realization that this was going down and how the communities were disrupted and how this likely persists up until this very moment,
1: Yes, yeah, So we were uh, we received the bomb threat about five a.m. on Tuesday morning, and so we do know that it came from a non-local number. Immediately, we decided to uh, how to approach this. So, of course, out of an abundance of caution, uh, our university police. Uh, coordinated with local officials so that we could, you know, sweep the campus and uh, make sure that uh, there were no bombs. We sent out alerts to the students and faculty, and of course, uh, many of them, uh, you know, and the students and some of the faculty, of course, immediately took to social media, and so that helped to spread the word. The students were evacuated from their dorms to the gymnasium. Fortunately, we have more commuters uh, uh-huh. that, uh, on campus than we do residential students. So we have the capacity to house about 1,000 residential students. Uh, and probably, I think we had at least six or 700 who are on the campus. So we did that. And with by mid morning, everything was clear, but the disruption and the psychological anguish, especially for those of us who are in charge of the university, was tremendous uh, I think the students initially it didn't really resonate in the same way with them they some of them were hurt they say, you know." And we don't know this for sure, that just may be their way, may have been their way of coping. But I'm sure for some of the students, it was quite traumatic. They have not expressed that in any extent to the administration, but it's something we have to be aware of and keep our eyes on to try to get the pulse of the students and how these situations, such as this, may have impacted them. We fortunately for us, some of us in the administration, we about two weeks prior we had gone through some training on this particular kind oh. of incident. So I think it was in the top of our minds uh, because we knew also that some HBCUs had received threats in January, and then the day before. And this is the second time I know when I first in my early years here at Mississippi Valley, we had a bomb threat. Uh, and so, you know, the students were evacuated from the campus. We had many more students then. Of course, it turned out to not have been anything but, but a threat. But it's just to even address that time and effort and money that goes into that, right? So it's very disruptive, but you have to take it seriously because the first time we don't take it seriously may be the time that it actually comes to fruition. It's really a bomb. So, you know, just working through all of those things is a tremendous amount of time and effort and psychological anguish because, you know, we have to be concerned about the students as well as the people who work here on the campus. So it's our responsibility. So that's a lot.
0: Right, right. And the, all of those things are limited resources, limited com- quantities. So it's uh, taking away from what it could be in, invested in, whether it's in the learning, it's in the the kind of mental health services that are working on the ongoing trauma. <laughs> and then, Yeah are there better ways of expressing these assaults on the campuses that we say received a threat? It just, that passive voice just doesn't work for me, but is there another way to bring this up? And I, and I'm not listeners. I am, I am not amplifying the perpetrators and the, the asymmetry is hurtful enough that there's a few people that could cause so much disruption, but is there a better way to express these kinds of assaults on these communities?
1: I am, you know, I'm, thought about that, and I I don't, you know, in terms of the terminology, but I think we do have to do do attention to expressing the impact of these threats and assaults on the university, on the people who work here, and on the community writ large. And how do we do that? And I think, uh, for me, I've been thinking about this in the environment our national climate, Mm -hmm. which helps to produce this kind of behavior. Extremism is on the rise, has been, since the Obama election, right? Right. And so it's not that it was not there already. It's just it's more amplified and more visible. People have been empowered in some way to engage in these kinds of activities. And I think part of that extremism is related to the fact that the majority community now sees itself as a threatened because they are becoming a minority. And so how do we this attempt to hold on to power by any means necessary, right? Mm. Or this attempt to further denigrate people who don't look like them It's all, you know, has become more and more amplified, and especially during the Trump administration. And so you wonder how, allegedly, the people of interest are some young people. So how did they become these kinds of people? You know, they weren't born that way, right? So it's the climate, it's the environment, uh, that encourages that, be, that kind of behavior. And I think even, I thought about it, this is another way to terrorize African American people. To, you know, and, and when you think about COVID, you think about, you know, the public health stuff, you think about the assault on voting rights, all those kinds of things have played into, I think, are part of this Critical race theory, which many people who are anti-critical race don't really understand what it is. So all those things uh, are out there in the universe, and people are gravitating to them because in some way in their minds, their power,
0: position, and privilege is being attacked. And I've been thinking about the, the outsized, the, the rather considerable profiles of women associated with Howard University come to mind. That we have Vice President Kamala Harris, an alum of Howard, and recently hired Professor Nicole Hannah-Jones. That maybe that those kind of profiles make Howard, among other universities, possible targets for this public, very public macro macro aggression. And so even the names of the black jurists being considered for the Supreme Court of the United States nomination process, they were mainly, even though they're mainly educated in the Ivy Leagues, that this, there may be a connection with the higher profile of all these women and what you're talking about, the this sort of zero-sum mentality of white privilege, giving up something.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and, and I think even with, we can go back, say, to Obama's right. election, You know, I would dare say (laughs) some people voted for him because, you know, of his background in terms of, you know, Ivy League educated uh, and, as they would say, very articulate and (laughs) excited. And and so, you know, those kinds of people, uh, those kinds of people who exhibit what they call, you know, acceptable behavior. So... Commanding they, uh, a person like Obama, right? Uh, or like some of the uh, possible uh, si- Supreme Court potential nominees, they—they, they, I think, the majority community see them more as safe than say a person like you or a person like me, <laughs> you know. So, uh, or uh, so this sense that they are different from the other, you know, folk that look like them. So all of those things, I think, come into play. It's complicated, but it's, you know, it's like some of us are more palatable to the powers that be than others, even though we look alike (laughs) and we may have similar intelligence or or even more intelligence. It's the palatability. What kinds of people of color are we willing to tolerate? That's kind of how I see part of this.
0: Okay, thank you. My guest, for those of you who just joined us, is Dr. Kathy Stroh-Mile-Golden. She's Provost, Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs, Director of International Programs at Mississippi Valley State University, and Executive Director of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. So, what processes, Dr. Golden, are underway in the aftermath of these threats so the media attention subsides. I don't think I can find anything covering this since it sort of drops off after the middle of last week. So talk about this problem. Uh, about, well, and, and when I was typing up culprits, uh, you know, the perpetrators, my fingers, they, they came up with a better word, culprits. <laughs> uh-huh. <Okay. laughs> the culprits. And I thought, man, I'm going to bring that in there. And so the the need here to educate society on the meaning of this assault. I mean, you're, you're on your way to doing that right now with, with what you've already said. And so, and, and this, in this climate, the setting where we have half of the country getting infantilized about a good American history ought to be and the other mm-hmm. half, or maybe even more than a half, raging about not learning any of this earlier in our lives. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of educating going on post the expression of these assaults. So what kind of an education, I mean, it, it, it's it's such a difficult setting to educate society on the meaning of these assaults.
1: Yeah, and I think you use corporate. I use criminals. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Because they are. And I just can't imagine if these kinds of assaults happened for PWIs, this many at one time, what the response would be. I think it would be different. I think it would be more intense, you know. I think there would be more intentionality behind intentionality and urgency of identifying the the criminals, the people who are engaged in this activity. We say HBCUs have been under assault forever. Mm. Well, that's to say that. Is to in a way dismiss these assaults yes we have been and yes we have been resilient and we've survived but this should not be in in the 21st century right yeah. so we have to be more intentional I think as HBCUs about how we amplify and, and keep this alive about, you know, how we express this. Now, some of the presidents uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think after the January attacks, had meetings with uh, Homeland Security Mm -hmm. about this issue. But I don't recall seeing any statement from Homeland Security on this. I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we, uh, our presidents, our alumni, we have to keep this in the forefront. And we have to say, you know, make the connect the dots. It's not just about these threats. It's about the threats to black lives, brown lives, in general, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is just one manifestation of that. When we put all of this together, you think about the rollback of voting rights. Uh, you, we look at redistricting that's going on now. Here in Mississippi, the the voting rights uh, under challenge, they redrawn the district lines where uh, some people think we should have had two majority-minority districts. We still have one, uh, which covers almost the entire state. Wow. You know. So we, those, all of those things are in my mind connected, right? And all of those things can help to embolden people who would assault, not only the HBCUs but people of color in general. And, and it, it's not always physical; that mental thing is real too. And so it is incumbent on the leadership of the HBCUs to, one, we have to educate our students. Uh, The students are not sometimes as active as, say, maybe we were in the 60s and 70s, right? So we have to do a better job of educating our students around these issues and encouraging them to take up advocacy roles within the community to be community activists, all of those things. Uh, and we have to train them to be that. That's that's part of what we hope we do in NCOPs. But it's incumbent on us as leaders to also ensure that the students we are responsible for educating have more than just an academic education. And we have to, you know, be intentional about that it, it, it's necessary because when these students leave here i mean they may they encounter microaggression racism even sometimes here on the campus from some of the professors but they may not recognize it as no them. no
0: serious
1: oh <laughs> yeah my- so you know it's it's because hbcus interestingly you know hbcus have always been open to everyone, regardless of race, nationality, ethnicity, all of those things. And a good number of HBCUs were
0: founded by Caucasians. Was be- with that being that the agriculturally chartered kind of campus, is that?
1: Well, those, those land-grant campus uh, universities were, you know, they came about in part because the powers that be didn't want the Blacks going to the white schools, right? And so they created these land-grant institutions, and they were supposed to be funded by the federal government and the, and the state with matching. Well, most of those land-grant institutions have been seriously underfunded billions uh, over the years from day one. And so they were, they even the land-grants, those were more like state, more state institutions than, say, for example, Jackson State, Howard, uh, Morgan State. You know, Jackson State started out as a church school that was founded by Caucasians. Morgan was founded, you know, in Howard. So we have schools like that. Of course, Howard is private, but Morgan and Jackson State are state institutions now. And... I think many students, the current students, are not even aware of that that history, that legacy, how some of these universities came to be, and and what that means. So, recently Forbes did a piece on the underfunding of uh, land grant, uh, black land grant institutions compared to white land grant institutions, and I think in this day, I think all corn. Which is in the state of Mississippi, is the oldest HBCU land grant institution. And so it, even it has not been funded to the extent that it should. Uh, of course, its funding has been more than some other land grant institution, but they've all been underfunded.
0: And Alcorn also was a subject of these bomb threats last week. Yeah. So that's yes. just to. Uh-huh. So for those of you just joined us, my guest is Kathy Stromile-Golden. She's Provost, Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs, Director of International Program at Mississippi Valley State University. And she's also Executive Director of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. And uh, we're talking about the the kinds of assaults, and the, the, this is like the underfunding is like the sp- serious macroaggression. I mean, it's, that's, mm-hmm. a, it, it has to be categorized as that. Well, so talk to us, Dr. Golden, about how black political science academics negotiate the work in which you're engaging, the choices you make with so much need straddling academic. Advocacy and activist roles, and I and rule number one for everybody is don't just ask in a facile way. Don't nimbly just say, "Well, we need you to be on this committee," and it turns out that the minority. Black faculty member has to be the sort of representative of, all, of Blackness on every single committee so that one person is holding down so many different roles. So I want to know how, let's roll back to my general question about straddling all those roles and how, how, to, how to maintain your, uh, <laughs> your vigor, how to maintain your, your academic sort of goals and objectives. I mean, there's so many hats. There are. And and those hats
1: vary depending on the kind of campus you're on. So, for example, my colleagues who are on the campuses of PWIs, and it depends on whether it could be private, state, you know, top tier, uh, second tier, whatever. So it's a tremendous juggling act and not all not all of us participate in the same way so for example you could have a black political scientist who's at an Ivy League school and and they are doing you know all the checks but they may not be engaged in activist work they may be doing the safe kind of things so they to serve on a committee they may or may not have strong relationships to uh, other African-American students on the campus. You know, that may not be a part of their kind of operating procedure. Dr. They may Golden, be more just... concerned with, you know, not upsetting the status quo and and getting tenure.
0: Well, well, just then one moment, ha- Dr. Golden. Then you have
1: others who would say, you know, I have to be – engaged in community work and activism even though I'm going to do these other things too. And many of us, our research revolves around political activism, studying it, and also engaging in it. Uh, and some campuses are more amenable that, to that than others, but at the end of the day it comes down to the choice the individual makes. So. If your guiding principle is to be successful as defined by someone else, then you're going to do the things that you think you need to do to be successful by somebody else's standards. If your guiding principle is to be true to who you are and to be of service to your community and society, Then you can approach your research, your teaching, your work on the campus in a very different Mm -hmm, way, mm -hmm. and it's and you may pay a cost for that, right? But at the end of the day, if this is who you are and you're being true to yourself, then you have no regrets. So I guess this is a, a way of saying that. All of us who are black political scientists don't identify as black political scientists, okay? And, and so we may not even be invested in the African American community, seriously invested in the way that some of our colleagues are. So I think you can find all kinds of people or different persuasion among black political scientists. Uh, but for the National Conference of Black Political Scientists- we celebrate black scholarship. We celebrate scholar activists. We honor them. And we see that as one of our mottoes is, you know, we are uh, in the service of the liberation of people of African descent. And so if we're true to that, then we have to be activists. We have to advocate. We have to do those things that would enrich our lives as well as the lives of the African American community, people of color, poor people, all of those things. And so we do encourage that. We honor it. We, you know, we give an award for that every year, because that's important to who we are and doing what we say we do and live, being true to our mission.
0: So thank you for uh, that. And yeah, Dr. One. I just want to interject, though, for uh, those that are not on board with The PWI means predominantly white institutions. And I'm just puzzling uh, when I think of UC Irvine, uh, I don't think we think of ourselves as predominantly white in terms of our, the Pacific Rim demographic here. So it may be that that changes a little bit. Just it's, it's just underrepresenting black members of the community, you know, on the campus. And I know there's such a, You know, it's a they're they're so the the critical mass of black members of the UCI campus is, is very small. It's not critical. And it's the identification is very, very, very problematic, including with the with the actual faculty. They have a very, very it's a, a rough time here but it's so predominantly white institutions is it's an interesting term to use when we're thinking of like some the California universities that may that may have to change in some kind of a descriptor so i'm just putting that out there so if you could talk yeah i could say and, and some some institutions
1: that were historically uh identified as pwis are now called msis
0: okay multi
1: which, Uh, refers to uh, minority-serving institutions. Okay. So it means, and, and that's based on the student demographics. Okay. Okay. So right here, about 45 miles from where I am, there's another state institution, Delta State, which was a PWI and is now classified as an MSI because of the number of black and brown students they have.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, and so you see that, and it's, that is even interesting too. Right. Because historically, some funds that may have more, more of the funds that would come to HBCUs as designated HBCUs, the competition is greater now because the MSIs are thrown in that as well. So you will often see HBCUs MSIs. Sometimes you'll just see MSIs. And it becomes, uh, so if, say, if there's a federal grant out there and it says MSI, well, as an HBCU, you could apply, you would qualify. But now, you know, the the moniker is MSI. Right. (laughs) And then I had this discussion on Sunday with Tiffany.
0: uh, On our campus here, yes. Yes,
1: Willoughby Harad. Uh, they, uh, some of the MSIs get those funds, and there's no accountability for it. You know, oh, wow. they just, and these are federal funds. So, and, and the students who should benefit from those funds are not necessarily the primary beneficiaries. So even that, you know, it's it's <laughs> all those things are going on as well. So, you know, so the pot of money is small, so you increase the number of people who qualify to apply for those uh, funds. And so even that, then, is a challenge for, can be a challenge for HBCUs, which historically, you know, they say, okay, this is for HBCUs. Now it's HBCUs and MSIs. Wow. So, you know, we we are all forever playing catch-up, you know, because... We've not been treated in the way, you know, from day one, even with the land grant institutions. You just look at the land grant HBCUs and the billions of dollars that they have lost out on just because the states and the federal government didn't fund them in the same way that they funded the white PWIs, the PWIs land grant. Yeah. It's a complicated maze, right? Right, right. But we keep trying to chip away as much as we can. And I, I would dare say that even for some presidents of HBCUs, especially those who are in state systems, you know, there's a fine line that they walk. And, you know, some choose to be safe and walk that line, you know. So others choose to say, well, you know, this may be the line, but I'm going over this line because this is important to me. This is important for our students. This is important for our community. So even among the HBCUs, you know, the leadership is varied. You have presidents who are quite vocal and outspoken and willing to uh, take risks. And you will have others who are just going to play a saint.
0: Well, Dr. Golden, there's one other differential a disparity in the HBCUs, too, that I wanted just to bring up just in passing before we talk about the intersectionality of what political scientists are, are dealing with on all the campuses. But the, the veterans benefits after World War II were very differential in how they were made available. Black veterans were not getting the same kinds of resources that white veterans were getting and that showed up in the HBCU funding as well, did it not?
1: Right. Yes.
0: Okay. Yes. And, and even now
1: there are some, you know, programs that are targeted to, toward veterans, but I'm I'm not sure, you know, of all of the funding, I know we just recently got, uh, received a grant from the Department of Ed. It's probably between three and three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars 500000 over maybe three or five years to, to uh, assist veterans. But it's not just black ones. It can be any of them in the Delta, so in this area. And quite frankly, You know, part of the challenge is being able to identify those veterans. Uh, Some Mm -hmm. we know of, uh, but there's quite a bit of work because it it may require coordinating with the Veterans Administration to low. And and of course, you know, they are in. I don't know what how to describe. They they are similar to the IRS and disorganized.
0: <laughs> right, undermined, uh, underfunded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So even,
1: even that, but it's not just for veterans of color. It's for all veterans. Oh.
0: So you were talking about the black political scientists and in, in, in associating in the, with the national conference that, that you are the executive director for. And so if you could, and I know it's a really important institution, and I'm thinking though black political scientists have so much intersection with other disciplines on all the campuses. And I'm thinking of the amazing forums that I've been able to witness at UCI that deal with intersectionality. There's the law school, there's humanities, there's public health, and even the physical sciences promoting the STEM careers for persons of color. So could you talk about how that intersectionality is addressed with the National Conference of Black Political Scientists—it's pretty yeah, so, big.
1: So first, let's say this: our I, the, we, we're called we're a National Conference of Black Political Scientists, but we have members that span a number of disciplines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's one thing, and and practitioners, uh, politicians, community activists. So we bring all these different strands together in in one setting so uh, nco does not discriminate in terms of its membership and disciplinary training so we do that and and many of our members collaborate across disciplines with researchers for example even here myself i've done stuff in public health with people in public health Uh, Right now we are involved in a project with um, a public health project that uh, focuses on COVID and uh, comorbidities among Mm. African Americans Mm. and people here in the Delta. So we've always, you know, encouraged that intersectionality and uh, explored things from multiple perspectives, and I dare say many of the members of ENCOPS. Are you know we talk about intersectionality all the time and 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 so people do uh research around you know different topics and issues, for example, we're political scientists, but we are always concerned with policy and the and policy making policy outcomes, mm. whether it be in health care uh whether it be in transportation education all of those things so this is a space where we encourage the looking at things from varied lens and, and encourage people to collaborate across the disciplinary divide. Uh, myself as a political scientist, but most of the international projects that I have directed have been in the STEM area. So, and I teasingly say, I learn STEM from doing. So, right, uh, right. And, and there's always a policy perspective, I think, to to look at, even in terms of how the policy came to be, how it evolved over time, how you know, all of those things. So, we and and for us as black political scientists, I think we always have to have. Or give some consideration to the impact of policies at the state, local, national, even international policy black lives and I think we can learn from that it gives us a lens to from which to maybe approach things differently. It can inform how we engage in activism and the you know the different dynamics so i I, I don't know how you can study political science in a vacuum. I, I just don't I don't see it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And the further education besides that, I I I just want to I guess for people to let sink in this this idea about policy. It's sort of the the deep breathing uh versus the shallow breathing of politics. And that's where mm-hmm. uh, where the the media always abdicates the it's responsibility in all of the the politic of something and the policy gets lost and the the literacy of the civic society is wasted there it's it's yeah so i want to talk about the matter of how exhausting it is for political scientists and all uh, and all uh, black members of our society to bring this society along with all the missed history over the four centuries and just recently I was I was informed about the New York City Central Park displacing the Seneca community I'd been aware of Bruce Beach in Los Angeles being displaced by eventually the the Ku Klux Klan Icing out the the family members from that beautiful beach up in uh, north of the airport area. There, it's a whole subfield in political science to catch everybody up. That must be exhausting. It is, and you you and you know you talk
1: about the, even if you think about Tulsa. And the Black Wall Street. Right over. Even we have here in Mississippi the town of Mount Bayou, which was founded by black folk, and it was self-sufficient. It's, you know, and, and now they're trying to do some things to bring attention back to it. There are so many people who don't know about these places, who don't know here in Mississippi. A lot of African Americans had their land stolen from them, or this whole thing about how USDA discriminated against black farmers. Uh, you know, people are not knowledgeable. Uh, A lot of people, and I dare say, you know, our young people, This is unless their parents probably taught them, they've never heard of this, you know. Right, right, right. Uh, I would dare say even right here in, in this university and some other HBCUs, the students are not as aware of our history as they should be. And I would even argue that we haven't done our part to ensure that the students who matriculated HBCUs fully understand the history of African Americans in this country now i, I it's amazing that what students Well, well, it's not amazing. You you consider our education system and how it's morphed since the 1970s. It's not amazing.
0: But even
1: at that, I think HBCUs have to do a better job of promoting uh, an understanding of the history of African Americans in this country. We do it, but I don't know that we... It's certainly different from when I was at an HBCU. I'll put it that way. You know, when I was in school, I can remember, you know, we, uh, everything was, you know, we read the classics by black people. We were encouraged to, uh, we we protested against uh, the Rhodesian chrome coming into Louisiana ports. You know, we did. And our professors were... The people who motivated us, who encouraged us, who insisted that we not only do the academics but we think more broadly about the community and where we come from and where we're going, so I don't think we uh enough of us do that
0: now, well, and I guess that's the that's the intention of the movements to undermine this historic literacy by trying to sort of peg a particular kind of pedagogy in primary, secondary, and in higher education that uh, is trying to sort of make a a more dogmatic kind of pedagogy so that, that what is labeled as critical race theory, whether or not there is critical race theory being a part of the materials, it's just... The, the, the end game is just to make everything so very unclear so that there will be a kind of a tracking back further of bringing out this very, very rich historical material for students.
1: You know, what I thought about, uh, especially around this uh, discussion about critical race and here in Mississippi, is that. I, I thought about the Soviet era yeah. under uh, Stalin and those so the revisionist history, you know. And, and so well, there's this thing that, you know, I think the majority of the population, many of them say, well, we know we're not as bad as you portray us to be. Uh, we didn't do that. This is, you know, we, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, they are willing. To just dismiss a critical part of history because of their discomfort and because of their fear, and I was like this is you know uh, really kind of in my mind, kind of Soviet like behavior. And have you seen that though
0: uh, labeled as such in other areas because that's your academic background. so um, that's that's a pretty apt metaphor, a, an analogy to draw here. Have you yeah, I, I just I, and I was thinking about this over the
1: weekend. I was like, oh these people are revisionists. <laughs> to right, right. write history to suit them, right or, right Or uh, advocate history in a way that uh,
0: makes them comfortable. So let's wrap the conversation, the interview here with where we go from here though. I mean it's the, the, you're talking about the students. Seem to be not as engaged as you recall in your day in the '70s and the '60s. That the um, where do we go forward with raising participation? Because this participation gets us with people becoming habitual voters in every single election. Because there are a lot of people that were not participating in the the last several cycles. So any pre- sort of prescriptive measures that you think we're, we're poised to help develop together? Here before we close.
1: Yeah, I, I think that each of us who is an academic and who is really committed to a just and fair society are required, we, we don't have a choice. We have to reach as many students as we can uh, to encourage them and, and teach them about the value of activism and how they can change the system. You know, we can collectively. I keep thinking about what Stacey Abram did in, oh, in Georgia. Yes. And I'm saying, you know, we can't we shouldn't let that kind of activism and, and go get Die. It is important our students here voting. You know they are not serious about voting. They can vote right here on the campus. And do you know why aren't they serious? This campus is not. uh, You can walk this campus in ten minutes. To get them to vote, sometimes we have to go and pick them up from the dorm rooms. You know, so it's that kind of thing. We we really have to be. I guess, as aggressive and, and mm-hmm. persistent as possible and getting people to understand, and these are not just students, that your vote matters. You need to vote. We can change some things if we vote. We also, there's also, I think, a need, and I don't know how we do this, to bring brown black and brown people together more so that we can, I think, change would be much faster, really. So we may not have the economic power right now, but we have the political power, and we need to unleash that political power. So that means we have to be much more aggressive, not only in the communities, but on the campuses, wherever we are. And it doesn't matter what kind of campus you're on that that you know we have to amplify our voices and educate people about the injustices that have gotten us to this place and and continue i I don't know what else we can do, you know i I just think that boots to the ground is what we need, and we need lots of boots on the ground pushing educating people and and getting them to understand that you know there's power there's really power in numbers and that we may not have the economic power right now but if we unleash that political power it's going to unleash some of the more of the economic power
0: so we got to get i guess the thing is getting every little victory celebrated to, and keep expanding on those victories so they they get hooked on that so Yeah, so never this, let it die never 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 well Dr. Golden, this has been so, so helpful and so, so intimate with what's going on, where there has been such trauma experienced uh, in this last week and be, and way back in history. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. My guest was Dr. And come to visit us soon. Yes, I'd love that. So my <laughs> guest was Dr. Kathy Stromile-Golden provost, senior vice president for academic affairs, director of international program in Mississippi Valley State University, and executive director of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, director of the graduate assistant program. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, Neil Kelly, retiring Orange County registrar voters, will give us an exit interview. Other platforms are already doing this and giving my own special experiences hosting Neil. I'm, I am aim to be bettering the competition, okay? Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.